Sometimes a song just gets you. We're not singing, I will hold me fast, are we? We're not singing, when I fear my deeds will fail. We're not singing, when I fear my works may not be enough. We're making a declaration of faith, aren't we? And we're declaring that there are moments where our faith is fragile. But in those moments that we worship a God who will hold us fast. Man. I wonder if you were to write down one or two words, some of you are note takers, you've got a pen ready, you've got your notebook and stuff. If you were to write down two words right now that you would say characterize the Christian faith, Christianity, what would that be? What would those words be? Or if you just had them in mind, or one word, if you could sum it up in one word, think about that just for a moment. What would it be? If somebody said in one word, what one word would you use to describe or to maybe give a glimpse of Christianity? There's certainly lots of words we could put down, aren't there? And, and I would say that some of you may say grace. Some of you may simply say Jesus. Some of you may say mercy. Some of you may have said faith. And that's where I want us to kind of camp out today is, is faith. Is how many of you would have said faith, that it's by faith alone that we're saved through God's grace alone and Christ alone? How many of you would say that faith is there? I mean, what is faith? We talk about it, we, we sing about it, we've, we've sang about it today already. We sometimes flippantly say faith, but what is it? Is it the faith, the kind of the right doctrine? Jude describes the faith, that, that you would stand firm in the faith in Jude 3. Is, is faith just kind of what you got to have, right? You got to have faith. The song, I think is the 80s song said, right? I'm not going to sing it. Although all week I've had that little jingle in my head and I can't get it out, right? Is that what it is? Is it just something that we cling to in difficult times that we say, hey, we just, we just, just got to have faith, brother. That's just got to have faith. I, I would say it's, it's not less than that, right? It certainly would include that. What, what is, it? is it? Does the object of our faith matter? Is it just something that we have? Is it, is it this thing that we obtain and we say, I've got faith and that's it? Or is there the object that matters? The writer of Hebrews defined it for us. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, gave us a, a whole chapter on what, not only what faith is, but what faith looks like. All these men who, in their failures, lived in faith. What is faith, though? Do we really have understanding? If somebody looked at you and said, what is faith? What, what does that mean? How would you describe faith? How would you describe it to them? How, how would you describe it to someone who has never walked through the doors, who wasn't from the Bible Belt, right? 
You go to somewhere, like for me, I, I went to Thailand, and when I went to Thailand, it was the first and only place I've ever been where I sat down and said something about Jesus or about faith or about grace, and they had no clues, they had no frame of reference. So how do you explain it to them? What is faith? And I, I was just sitting there kind of thinking about that this week, and, and, and I think the way I would explain it maybe is that, that faith is the extension of trust in someone or something to do something that we believe that that person or that thing is able to do. So it's when we extend our trust towards something or someone to do something that we believe that thing or person can do. So all of you have demonstrated faith in chairs this morning, right? There's no one in here who is standing other than myself. I have no faith in those chairs evidently, right? But you have extended trust in that chair. You've looked at the chair and you've counted it worthy and said, it can hold me, so I'm going to take, and none, I don't think any of you are sitting there tensed up, kind of holding, doing like a, a, a sit, right? You're, you're there, you're resting completely, complete trust in that chair. And so we think about faith, that's a very elementary, a very simple way to describe faith, but that's what it is, that we are extending our trust, our whole trust on something or someone to do what we believe that thing or that person can do, right? Paul understands this. Paul knows this. We're going through the book of Romans. And Paul understands the, what faith is, and he understands that it's faith that saves. It's not works. And so he's writing to the church in Rome. And as we've walked through that, I think it's helpful to, to kind of look back and see where we've been. Paul begins writing. He begins in chapter 1 with the introduction and then he goes on and he starts just kind of making somewhat of a, a legal case, right? He comes in, it's kind of like his opening argument. He presents a legal case and we're just going to walk through really quick. In Romans 1, he starts talking about the fact that, that the wrath of God was revealed. God has made himself known in creation so that man is without excuse. But yet man in his ungodliness suppresses the truth. And as man suppressed the truth, God gave him over to his own desires, the own lust of his mind. And he says that three times, that God gave man, essentially gave man what he wanted. And that's how he demonstrated, that's how he enacted his wrath, is that he gave man what man wanted. And so as such, we see this progress, this, or digress, maybe we should say, of man's sinfulness, that, that we see kind of a backwards Roman road. It's not the Roman road of salvation that many of you would know. It's the Roman road of falling further and further into sin, he goes in the chapter 2 and he presents and says, listen, this is where man has come to. They are completely, they're depraved, they're evil, they're sinful. And now you need to understand that God is a righteous God, a God who judges. He is a just and a holy God. And he will carry out his wrath. He will carry out his punishment. That man has rejected God, he's suppressed the truth, and man will be judged. We all inherit sin, and those who are sinning are just storing up wrath for themselves. Chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 are some of the darkest passages of Scripture, in my opinion. Because there's not a lot of hope there. He goes in the beginning of chapter 3 and talks about the fact that there is no one righteous, no, not one. That we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But then... The great but of Scripture, but God, right? God in His mercy and His grace saves us through our faith. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And now we hear of the good news, 3, 21 through 26. is kind of the gospel in a nutshell. And we rejoice in that and we've read it and we've studied it. We hear it over and over. I think so much so that sometimes our ears become callous to it. And we just sit and go, oh yeah, okay, Romans 3, 21, faith. Saved by faith, got it, understand. But this is a big moment in the book of Romans. It's, a, it's the, the, the turning moment. It's where Paul shifts gears and says, listen, it's not that all hope is lost. If your hope is in you, then yes, all hope is lost. But there is hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Because God has brought about a righteousness, his righteousness, that is manifested through Christ. And that all who believe in him will be saved. So he gets to chapter 4, where Pastor Bill has been the last few weeks. And he comes in, this is his case study. So to this point, Paul understands that he's been, he's been putting some pretty serious things before the people. He's been saying, listen, the law does not save you. Your works don't save you. All are sinful and all are in need of Christ. Everyone sitting in here, myself included, are sinful and in need of Christ. But if you want an example, let me remind you of Abraham. Abraham was the premier example. He was the father, Father Abraham. Right? He was a father of the faith that, that they looked to as kind of the pinnacle of man. And he says, listen, here's Abraham. Let's look at him. Here's our case study. The thesis for this case study would be um, verse 3 of chapter 4 in Romans, where Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, and says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when he brings out Abraham as a case study, he said, listen, here's the main point. I want us to think about Abraham for a minute, and here's what you need to know, that Abraham believed God. He trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his works. It wasn't what he did. It wasn't who he was. It was his belief and trust in Christ, or in God, that was counted to him and credited him as righteousness. And so he goes on, and there's three ideas that Paul presents here. I want us to think about them briefly before we get into this morning's text. If you look at verses 3 through 8, Paul's argument is faith apart from works. Faith apart from works. Okay? If you look at 4, 9 through 12, it's faith apart from circumcision. Right? So the first section is he's dealing with good works. That good works don't save you. The second part, your identity, your national identity, your belonging to that covenant community as a, as a circumcised Jew, that does not save you. So faith apart from circumcision. Then our passage today, verse 13 through 17, is it faith apart from the law. So your religious obedience, he's going to say, will not save you. Now, lest we make the mistake to say, you know what? Okay, I've got that, and that's not me. I don't struggle with those things. I want to just think about those sections real briefly this morning. Listen, what is the first one, verses 3 through 8? Faith apart from works. Have you ever heard or thought this, well, I, I'm a good person. I do a lot of good things. I, I'm involved in charitable organizations. I give to these things. I volunteer my time. I, I, I am, a, I, you might even call me a, a philanthropist. I mean, I help people. Those things do not save you. Doing those good deeds, your morality does not save you. It doesn't matter how moral of a person you think you are. That does not save you. And Paul says it is faith apart from works. 
Faith apart from works. Faith alone saves, not your works. Or consider what he says in the next section, verses 9 through 12, when he says faith apart from circumcision. Do we depend on our identity? Have you ever thought or had someone tell you, well, I mean, look who I am. I, I'm an important member of the community. I, 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 people look up to me. My, my family is influential. I'm an American. I'm born in Kentucky. I live in the Bible Belt. I, this is who I am. I, I'm even a member of the church. All fine and well, but none of those things save you. Faith alone saves you. Our identity is to be found in Christ alone. Our identity is not in who we are, what kind of background we come from, who our family is. Our identity in Christ alone, faith alone, saves. And we come to our passage today, verses 13 to 17, where Paul says it's faith apart from the law. Let's read that together this morning. Romans chapter 4, beginning verse 13. I want you to to listen as we read this for some words that you would say are signal words or key words that would help you to understand his, his train of thought, his flow of thought, right? So listen for some of these words as we read through and it will help you kind of understand what he's saying. So verse 13, Paul says, For, there's a hint, there's one of them right there, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, let's look just for a moment before we get into it. Let's look at some of the key words here for what Paul's saying, okay? And this helps you as you seek to understand, interpret, study scripture. I think it's helpful to just note key words to understand the thought progression of the writer. So, look at verse 13. He says, for... The promise to Abraham. And in verse 14 it says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. And in verse 15, For the law brings wrath. So he's, there's some thought progression there, right? So the first one is in reference to what he said in verses 1 through 12, right? That Abraham was justified by faith, not by his work. It was, it was faith that was uh, credited to him as righteousness, right? It's not works, it's faith apart from works. It's not circumcision, it's faith apart from circumcision. So Paul says, for, we know this, it wasn't circumcision, for the promise to Abraham, okay? So he's, he's continuing to develop his thought. And when he talks about the promise and that righteousness comes through faith, in verse 14, he continues to develop it more. For, and then verse 15, for, so he's developing that thought in verses 13 through 15. We'll explore that more in a few minutes. And then if you look at verse 16, he says he's, he's going to say something that helps you to go, hey, he's going to explain this, right? This, he's, he's helping you. He says that is why, okay? So he's developing that thought, four, four, four. So here's some reasons. Here's some things you need to understand. And that is why, right? That is why it depends on faith. 
in order that. There's another key word there, in order that. That we would understand the purpose, the, the reason that it depends on faith. In order that, so that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his heirs. Right? So we understand somewhat of a, a flow, and we're going to look at that a little more in depth now. So when Paul says faith apart from the law, have you ever heard or thought, well, look at how much I obey. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a good Christian. I do exactly what God says to do, and I don't do the things that he says not to do. And look at how religious I am. We tend to be self-righteous, don't we? But that does not save. That does not save. Faith alone saves. Faith alone saves. So the reality is all these sections, I think, are deeply personal and deeply um, meaningful because we tend in our default, our flesh default, we tend towards one of those typically. I'm a good person. Look who I am. Or look how religious I am. I would say at some point in our lives that we probably tend towards that as a default position for wanting to justify who we are. Right? But Paul is saying, listen, it is not one of those. It is faith alone. It's faith alone. Listen, why is this such a prevalent theme in Scripture? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever come across something over and over and over and over again in Scripture? And going, why? Man, it's just saying this again. Do you ever come in here and go, well, we're talking about that again? Why is that? Why is that? It's, it's kind of like when you, uh, have you ever, anybody in here ever repaired a light? Anybody been so brave to do that? Repaired a light on your own? Yeah? See one hand back there. Really young guy. I don't know. I can't see the head, but uh, there, okay. All right. You know what is always in the instructions? First thing, Eddie would know what it is. First, first word of advice, turn off the power to the light. I mean, Chris, have you ever opened that instruction booklet and gone, ah, you don't need to say that? No, because somebody like me would go, oh, it didn't say that. And I'll just go on and stick my hand in there and I'm, you know. Why is it in there? Because it's important. Every time you open an instruction manual to replace a light in your home, it's going to say, turn the electricity off to it. It's important. Why is it that throughout Scripture we see it's faith alone? Don't trust in the law. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your identity. Why? Because God understands that our default, our flesh, our heart tends towards those things. We tend towards saying, look how good I am. Look who I am. Look how nice I am. Look how many good things I've done. Have you seen my charitable giving on my tax return? We tend towards those things. And Christ says over and over, it is faith alone. You can't hold yourself fast. It's faith alone. It's in Christ alone. So over and over. So this section of Scripture, there's two areas that we want to look at. First is Paul's argument of the insufficiency of the law. The insufficiency of law, verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, he says, the promise did not come through the law. So he's talking about the promise to Abraham. It did not come through the law. Verse 14, he says, for, if it's, if it's based on the law, that promise is actually void and useless. Now, why would he say that? 
the, the promise was made, we find out in Galatians 3, we'll look at that briefly. In Galatians 3, Paul tells us that the, the law actually came 430 years after the promise was spoken to Abraham. So what Paul's saying here is he says, listen, if, if the law is what justifies, if being religious is what justifies you and, and makes you righteous, if that's it, then the, the promise spoken to Abraham is worthless because it came after and it would nullify that. But it's not. He says it, it's not. It did not come through law. If it's based on law, it'd be void. It'd be useless. Verse 15, he says, for, for the law brings wrath. So you see the progression? You see his thought progression? For the promise did not come through law. For if it's based on law, the promise is void and useless. And if that's the case, if it is based on law, then the law brings wrath. You understand that, that, that the law brings wrath, it brings death, it brings damnation because there is none who are able to abide by it. We've already covered that. Paul's already addressed that. Paul said in Romans 3 that there's none righteous. No, not one. We can't abide by all the law. We just can't. And so it brings God's wrath. It brings death. Listen, if you're here this morning, depending on your religiosity and how well you obey, you are in a world of trouble. If I stand before you and say, hey, I'm depending on how much I obey and my, how religious I am, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble because I do not perfectly obey. Flip over to Galatians 3 with me briefly. Paul makes this very clear. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If if we're depending, if we're relying on the works of the law, we're under a curse. Why? Because there's no one. He says, listen, if you don't abide by every one of the laws, then you're cursed. It's just not happening. He goes on to say, verse 11, Now it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4 there. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What a beautiful statement that is. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, or the promise that we're talking about in Romans 4, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We might receive it through faith. The righteous live by faith. It is not works of the law. It's not religiosity. Now, Bill addressed this last week. Does that mean that we, as the internet has been debating or crying out over the last couple of weeks, if you're privy to it, do we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament then? If it's just faith alone, do we set aside the law? No. Paul, Paul goes on, Galatians 3. We don't have time to go there. I'm just going to mention four things to you, though, real, really briefly, just so you know, that we don't, we don't divorce ourselves from the law. The law still has a purpose. It's still useful. How should we understand the law? Here's a, couple, a few things very briefly. One, the law, we need to know that the law is not contrary to God's promises. It is not contrary to God's promises. He says that in Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No. No, Paul says. The second thing we need to understand the law is that the law, according to Galatians 
The law was our guardian before Christ, so it was revealing and restraining our transgressions. Right? So it was our guardian before Christ. It was showing us our transgressions, and it was helping us to be restrained from transgressing, from sinning as we might. Number three, the law reveals the insufficiency of our righteousness. It reveals that, that we simply are not righteous. Verse 10, what we read, that there's none of us who completely obey and abide by the law. We don't. We are insufficient in our religiosity, in our righteousness. That's just who we are. Fourth, this is something we don't think about sometimes. The law reveals the character of God. It reveals the character of God. And every, everything that, law, that God instructs us to do or not to do, it teaches us about who God is. It teaches us that he values truth, that he is a holy God, that he values faithfulness. He calls us to contentment. All those things we learn from the law. We learn about more about the character of God by the laws that God has placed before us. Number five, that God's law teaches us how to live for God's glory. Your study in Philippians. If I'm not mistaken, next week you'll come to a passage where Paul says that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law helps us understand how to do that. It gives us an understanding of, of godly living. Of holy living. So the law is important, but it is not what saves. It is not what saves. So Paul says the law is insufficient. The promise does not come through the law. So the second section is the beauty, the beauty of the promise. The beauty of the promise, verses 16 to 17. Now, the word promise is an important word to me in my life. I value that word greatly, right? But what we understand, here's what we understand, is that the value, the value in a promise has less to do with what is promised and more to do with who does the promising. We understand that, don't we? Right? So the most important thing is who makes the promise, right? So that the one who would say, uh, that would make a promise but is unable to follow through or has constantly shown themselves not to be a promise keeper, not to be reliable, or who has shown themselves not to be willing to do that, then you go, hmm, really? And you doubt that promise. Now, if it's someone who is able and willing, that's a different matter, right? So let's, let's carry this out. Let's think about this. What if I promised you I would give you a million dollars if you go and you run a marathon in November in Indianapolis. How many of you guys are going to go do that? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm not giving you a million dollars. <laughs> All right, lessons learned already. Okay, now let's try it again. Now, this is when your time, this is when you want to raise your hand. What if Warren Buffett? looks at you and says, I will give you a million dollars if you run a marathon in November. What would you do? Would you do it? Yeah. Why? Because Warren Buffett has the collateral. He has the ability to carry that out, doesn't he? I, I couldn't give you a million dollars if I wanted to. He could. And not blink an eye. You see the difference? The promise is the same. Now, 
here's what I find kind of interesting. Is that some of you are, I think, treating the promise of salvation through faith from God like that second one. You're treating a God who is completely holy, completely faithful, completely able to be good on his promise. And you're sitting back going, (laughs) no. And you're shaking your head. And you're rejecting the gospel. When all the while, the God who is able, who is willing, has declared that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See, here's the truth you need to know this morning. Is that every promise made by God is a promise kept by God. You don't know one of the values of the Old Testament is that we learn that, that God is a promise maker and in the New Testament we see that he is a promise keeper. How do we know he's a promise keeper? Because we read the promises made. God is a promise maker and he is completely faithful to keep those promises. We need to understand that. Listen, if you're sitting here and you go, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if I should do it. Here's what you need to understand is that the unrivaled sovereignty and power of God gives him the complete ability to keep every promise he makes. So when he makes a promise in Scripture, he is wholly able, fully able to keep that promise. And what else we see in Scripture? We see throughout Scripture that the faithful God who is holy and just, his faithfulness gives us confidence that not only is he able, but he will. He will do that. He is a truth-speaking, faithful God. So he will carry out the promises that he makes. Now look at what Paul says about the promise. Let's look at that in verse 16. Oh, we're back in Romans, sorry. Back in Romans, verse 16. He says, well, verse 13 has both of them. If you look back at verse 13, he says, The promise, it does come, what, through the righteousness of faith. The promise comes through the righteousness of faith. So it's what he said in 321, that the righteousness of God is manifested to all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the promise of God comes through the righteousness of faith. Then in verse 16 he says, that is why it depends on faith. That's why it depends on faith. He's, He's fleshing out through Abraham the argument that he made in 321. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That we're justified by his grace as a gift. Verse 23, that that gift is received, it's to be received by faith in verse 25. Why? So that he is both the just and the justifier of the one who what? The one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, he's, he's just fleshing this out. He says, what, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's by faith. And he says the, 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 the promise, that is why it depends on faith. Listen, the law demands obedience. Right? The law demands obedience. When you have a law, it demands you obey it. But the promise demands faith. Because God says, this is what I will do. This is what I will do. We don't do anything. All we do is respond. We respond to what God has already done. 
we exert faith, we put our full, full trust in Him to do what He has said He was, will do. What He is able, what He is willing to do. It depends on faith. Verse 16. Here's your next key word, right? We talked about keywords. That is why, He's explained it depends on faith. In order that, what? In order that two things He says. The promise may rest on grace first. That it may rest on grace. Oh, listen. The grace is the foundation. Grace is what gives the promise validity and meaning, right? This is where our faith rests. Oh, man, that we, would, that we would sit back and stand in amazement and awe of God's grace this morning. You want to you boost your faith? You want to give your faith a shot on the arm? Just consider and step back and wonder anew at the grace of God. Step back and look at God's grace. That will give you a boost of faith. John Stott wrote this. He said, Faith ex- faith's exclusive function is to humbly receive what grace offers. It depends on faith. Our, the promise of God rests on God's grace. Tom Schreiner from Southern Seminary writes that faith accords with God's grace because it simply receives as a gift what God has done. Our Faith is in Christ alone and His promise rests on His grace. The second thing, in order that the promise may be guaranteed to all His offspring. That the promise may be guaranteed to all His offspring. You realize that the promise that God has made rests not in the deeds of man. It rests not in the deeds of man. But it rests in the grace of of the God who is willing and able to save all who call on the name of the Lord. That, that is the wonder and the beauty of the promise. Romans ten thirteen for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Galatians three twenty nine. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs. According to what? According to the promise. John three sixteen. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but what? But have eternal life. The promise of God is rich and full and beautiful. Certain. Why? Because he is able and he is willing. Listen, I just simply this morning just want to appeal to you to live by faith. Live by faith. Knowing that that is not our natural default. Knowing that we tend towards looking to what we've done, looking to who we are, looking to how religious we are. If you think and examine, I think Bill, was it last week or two weeks, had you just examine yourself and a test or something? If you just examine yourself, you will see that you probably tend towards one of those. But you know what the object of every one of those is? Think about it. What, what is the object of all of those things that you depend on? What I've done who I am, my religious deeds. What's the object? It's me. Every one of those are looking to me. Faith that saves looks to Christ. 
It looks to Christ. Faith does not look to self. I, I came across a, a statement this week where I was making a clarification on faith and said that faith is not concerned with how much faith I have. Faith is simply concerned with Christ. Some, some in here probably are, are so concerned, I, I just don't know if I have enough faith, and I, I, I just want to have more faith, and I, is my faith enough? Is my faith big enough? Is my faith strong enough? What's the focus of all that? My faith. Stop. Just stop it. Simply put all of your faith in Christ. Just put all your faith in Christ. Faith looks to Christ. It doesn't look to me. It doesn't look to my works. It doesn't look to my family heritage. It doesn't look to where I'm from, my ethnicity. It doesn't look at any of that. It looks to Christ. Would you look to Christ this morning? You need to know. You need to know that if you're depending on any of that, you're going to stand hopeless and in vain before God. When, when, when that day, day comes before God, you are not going to want to look at Him and say, hey, look how moral I was. Hey, look, look how many religious laws I followed. Hey, look what family I was a part of. Hey, look what sorority I was a part of. Hey, look what job I carried. Hey, <laughs> you, you will stand ashamed in that moment. When you stand before God, the only thing that you can say that is adequate is all I have is Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing else is going to matter on that day. The worship team is going to come and close us and I just want to appeal to you this morning to live by faith. Don't turn, don't turn callous ears towards that appeal to live by faith. Some of you have grown up in church. You've been in church longer than I've been alive. And you've heard faith preached on. Don't grow callous to it. Don't fall into trusting your religiosity, your religious heritage. Trust in Christ alone. Trust in Christ alone. Some of you in here are looking at the promise of God as though He is not able, as though He is not faithful to carry out and bring to completion the promise that He has said. Don't do that. The one who has spoken the promise is able to carry it out. So I would just appeal to you, if you're in here today and you're not a believer, extend your trust in Christ. Place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. God, we are thankful, God, for your grace. We are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the promise that you spoke. God, many of us in this room, God, we rest on your promise. 
And we are so thankful that it rests not in our works, not in our religiosity, but God, it rests in your grace alone. Oh God, we praise you for that. But God, there are friends in here, God, who don't trust you. God, I pray that you would do a work in their lives, God, that that they would trust you today. Oh God, move in the lives of our friends and family this day. And we declare now as we stand and sing that all we have is Christ. We trust nothing else. All we have is Christ. It's in his name that we sing and we pray. Amen.